You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part six in our series on Richard Francis Burton. Last time, we got Burton back to England, his African expedition complete. The expedition was a success with Burton and his fellow explorer, John Hanning Speak, reaching Lake Tanganyika, one of the African Great Lakes. Tanganyika is the second largest lake in Africa and the sixth largest in the world. Burton had hoped that it would be the source of the Nile River, but evidence suggested it was not, but there was no definitive proof. Now, this was all great, but Burton would be overshadowed, again, when Speak would make a solo excursion to the north and find the largest lake in Africa, which he named Victoria. Burton would then make the mistake of letting Speak get to England two weeks ahead of him. Once there, Speak would announce to the world that he had found the Nile's source. This infuriated Burton, who got into a very public and very nasty feud with Speak. Speak, not Burton, would be tapped to make the return journey to Africa and further explore the great lake that had been found. As for Burton, well, he would lick his wounds, lament his situation, and ponder his future. So, for today, we are going to cover four main topics. First, we will give an overview of Burton's trip to the United States. Second, we will follow it with a quick look at his time as a diplomat in West Africa. And third, we'll do a summary of Speak's expedition to Africa. This will be a high-level look at each of these topics. And the fourth thing we will cover will be the controversy and feud between Burton and Speak which will come to a head with a planned public debate in September of 1864. However, before we do any of that, a few quick notes about Burton. First, the man's health was not good, and to be honest, he would never fully recover from all he had endured in Africa. Also, he was drinking too much, something he did when he was under a lot of stress. Second, he wanted to marry Isabel Rundell, but Isabel's mother refused to sanction the marriage since Burton wasn't Catholic. Isabel's mother had an oversized influence on her daughter, and Isabel just couldn't do anything without her blessing. So that is it for notes. Let's get back to our story. The year was 1860. In April, Burton would put the final touches on his book, Lake Regions of Central Africa, and send it off to his publisher. Burton does not mention Speak by name in the book and takes numerous jabs at the guy. In the same month, Speak, along with James Grant, would sail from England bound for Africa on a return expedition to Lake Victoria. As for Burton, he would suddenly disappear after turning in his book. Isabel would get a letter from him saying he had gone to America. He said that when he returned, she needed to make a decision, him or her mother. So, why the sudden rush off to the colonies? Well, the best guess is that he was getting away from all the anger and frustration involving Speak and Isabel. He had been drinking too much, a sure sign of stress. But unlike most of Burton's travels, there was no advance notice or planning. He just took off. He would arrive in Halifax in Canada, and then move on to New York and meet with his American publishers. 
From there, it was on to Washington, D.C. In D.C., he met with American officials who gave him letters of introduction to the various military commanders in the Plains. Burton envisioned joining the Army in a campaign against hostile natives. On the East Coast portion of the trip, Burton would travel with his old friend, Dr. John Steinhauser, but for how long, we don't know. Anyhow, from Washington, Burton would spend three months going through the American South. Curiously, he would leave no record of this time. He simply starts the next leg of his journey in St. Joseph, Missouri. So what had he done in the South? Perhaps he had just went from city to city drinking and visiting the brothels. Who knows? Edward Rice, in his biography of Burton, titled Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton, speculates that our Englishman may have been on some mission on behalf of the British government or other interests in England. Let's remember the year. It's 1860. The American Civil War is only a year away. England relied heavily on American cotton and had deep ties with southern businesses. One of Burton's biggest supporters back home was a politician named Richard Milnes, the first Baron Houghton. Milnes would support the North in the upcoming Civil War, although Burton would support the Confederacy. What that means, who knows. Perhaps Burton was just gauging the pulse of the South, as British politicians and businessmen pondered what to do if war broke out. In the end, we just don't know, but Burton's utter lack of record of this time frame is curious. Now, the mysterious part of Burton's trip would end when, in August, he boarded a stagecoach in St. Joseph, Missouri, bound for Salt Lake City, Utah. Burton would have cut quite the picture, the Englishman in a tweed shooting jacket, buckskin trousers, heavy boots, and a silk hat. On each hip, he had a six-shooter, plus there was a huge bowie knife strapped to his side. He brought with him tea, cognac, cigars, and opium. So what was Burton up to? Well, he said that he wanted to study another exotic religion, and thus it was his desire to go visit the Mormons in Utah. He also wanted to study the American Indians, and hoped to join up with the American Army and go on a campaign against hostile natives. The journey to Salt Lake City would take 19 days, and Burton would take a ton of notes, as always. As his coach rolled across the plains and into the Rocky Mountains, Burton entertained his fellow passengers with stories of his travels, and he took note of all that happened around him. He got to see a wagon train, which he called, quote, those ships of the great American Sahara, end quote. He was also able to observe and interact with many native Indians and learned Indian sign language. Burton's desire for some combat would not be satisfied as there were no ongoing conflicts. Also, Burton was fascinated by American jargon. His favorite saying was, quote, getting liquored up, which he took to heart on this trip. From his own notes, it sounded like he got liquored up on many occasions. Once in Salt Lake City, Burton would spend 24 days there, exploring and diving into the Mormon religion. He would meet with settlers and church officials, and even spend an hour with Brigham Young, the leader of the church. He said Young came across as, quote, a gentleman farmer in New England, end quote. Burton would eventually write a book about his American trip, focusing on his time in Salt Lake City. It is titled, The City of Saints. He would, of course, examine the practice of polygamy in the church, something he noted was common in many cultures. He was not critical of the practice and points out the advantages, a stance he will maintain for all of his life. After Salt Lake City, Burton would continue west, departing on September 27th. He would go to Carson City, then Virginia City, and then on to Sacramento and finally San Francisco. In that time, he would visit some silver mines in Nevada and even pan for gold. Burton always dreamed of finding gold. One dangerous moment occurred when Burton's stagecoach would come to a station house, only to find it burned, complete with corpses. The station had been attacked by Indians in retaliation for the recent killing of 19 natives. Burton would endure a cold, nervous night, his pistols at his side, waiting for the Indians to return, but they never did. Burton would spend 10 days in San Francisco before boarding a ship bound for Panama. 
He would then cross the Isthmus of Panama and hop on another ship and return to England by the end of 1860. Burton returned to England healthier than he had been in years, and the first thing he did was to deliver an ultimatum to Isabel, marry me or I'm gone. Isabel replied that they would marry in three weeks' time, no matter what anyone said about the matter. When Isabel broached the subject with her mother, the reply was, never. But Isabel would not be stopped this time. She enlisted an influential cardinal and family friend to help her. As Burton was not Catholic, the cardinal arranged a dispensation for the two to marry once Burton provided a written document saying that Isabel could continue to practice her faith and raise the children as Catholic. The wedding would be a small one, held on January 22, 1861. Burton was 40 years old, while Isabel was 10 years younger. Burton would send Isabel's father a note after the wedding, saying, quote, I have committed highway robbery by marrying your daughter Isabel, end quote. Isabel's father liked Burton and was happy for his daughter. As for Isabel's mother, well, once the marriage was done, she accepted it and, from all appearances, came to care deeply for her son-in-law. By the way, I have touched on Burton and his now wife, Isabel, on and off in this series, something I don't always do. But Isabel will be a very important part of Burton's life going forward, and even more so after his death. And thus I wanted to talk about them as a couple, so you understand and appreciate future events. Plus, the marriage is important to Burton's own career going forward. A big reason for this is Burton did not have a lot of money, and Isabel did not bring any sort of dowry. So the couple was not well off. But Isabel's family did have some important connections, and Isabel will be relentless in promoting her husband and protecting his image and interests. So with all of this in mind, money was an issue for the newlyweds. A major issue would arise regarding Burton's position in the army. I mentioned last time that the East India Company was being nationalized by the British government. As a result, all the officers, such as Burton, had to be incorporated into the regular British army. Well, there were just too many officers to integrate, and thus many were cashiered for a variety of reasons. Burton was one of those men. He would lose his commission after 19 years in the service, a year short of his pension. Thus, the Burtons could not even count on that small sum going forward. And thus, Burton started to look around for another job. His new wife would try to get him a position as a consul in Damascus, but couldn't land it. As a result, Burton would be forced to settle for the job of consul on the island of Fernando Po, today called Bioko, part of Equatorial Guinea. The job paid £700 a year, and no one but Burton had applied for the position. Fernando Poe was called the graveyard of the foreign office due to the extraordinarily unhealthy climate. For this reason, Isabel would not accompany her husband on assignment. He would depart for the new job on March 27, 1861. The island of Bioko is 20 miles off the west coast of Africa. It covered 800 square miles, or nearly 1,300 kilometers, and had, at the time, a population of about 27,000 people. As consul, it was Burton's job to look after the interests of England and her citizens along the African coast. This usually meant working with traders, travelers, and merchants. He would mitigate disputes, make sure ships weren't involved in the slave trade, things like that. There was also a lot of drinking to be done, especially in the rainy season when Burton couldn't travel. The situation only frustrated Burton, who hated the island. He called Fernando Poe, quote, the very abomination of desolation, end quote. Edward Rice, in his biography of Burton, says this of the man at this time, quote, The African period reveals Burton at his most truculent. He was bitter, angry, black-mooded, and poured out his fury on the Africans whenever he encountered them, end quote. To be honest, Burton, as a whole, became crankier and more cynical about everyone. He rages at missionaries, his fellow whites, the British government, and the African people. He frequently complained about the insolence of the Africans. 
One example of this was Burton getting upset that several Africans rode in the first-class section of a ship that he was on going down the coast. He thought it was a social mistake to let the locals eat and sit with those who ruled them. It's an increasingly old-men-yells-at-the-cloud sort of attitude, replete with racist language and beliefs. Although I do want to note that Burton actually came to like the natives of Bioko, but like most Europeans, he felt that they had their place in society, which was not that of equals to the British. Now, during his time in Africa, Burton would travel up and down the coast as often as he could, a way to get away from Fernando Po. He would climb mountains in the Cameroons, go searching for gorillas in Gabon, visit various native kingdoms, including Dahomey in modern-day Benin, and travel up the Congo River to the famed Yalala Falls. Of the latter, Burton toyed with the idea of traveling beyond the falls, which was mostly unexplored, but he did not have the time or resources for such an expedition. This meant that these journeys did not break any new ground. They were more travels than explorations, just like the trip to America. Still, it demonstrates Burton's insatiable, restless spirit. He was rarely happy in one place for any length of time, and reveled in visiting new places and peoples. In all of these travels, Burton would do as he had always done. He took notes. He would describe the peoples, their religions, their ceremonies, and their lives. And of course, he recorded all the scientific stuff. Geography, flora, fauna, animals, and so on. Burton would produce three books about his time in West Africa, two volumes each. He is pretty brutal on everyone in the book, including the British government. Now, I want to note that while Burton was not thrilled about doing the work of a council, he did conduct his duties fairly and with care, and his travels would provide the British government a detailed lay of the region. And I want to note that Burton understood the value that Africa possessed. It had vast natural resources and cheap labor, and he predicted that it would become a key area for economic development and exploitation. Now, one other thing I want to note about this time was that in late 1862, Burton would go back to England on a four-month leave. While there, he and some of his colleagues formed the Anthropological Institute of London, which still exists today, although its name is now the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland. The Institute is a scholarly association dedicated to anthropology, which is the scientific study of humanity, including human behavior, human biology, linguistics, cultures, and societies. For Burton and his fellow founders, it was a way to print materials that other, more prudish groups would not. It is again an example of Burton's belief that discovery was not just about geography and not just about operating within societal norms. He truly believed there was a need to embrace a more expansive look at these subjects. Anyhow, Burton would eventually head back to his post and then, not long after, word would arrive from Khartoum. It was a telegram from John Hanning's speak to the Royal Geographical Society. It said, quote, The Nile is settled. End quote eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At this point in our narrative, I want to jump back to October of 1860. John Speak and James Grant departed from Zanzibar. Their plan was to head to Lake Victoria. Once there, the men would map the lake and head down the Nile, assuming it actually connected to Victoria. Another group would travel up the Nile and plan on meeting Speaking Grant at the city of Gondokora, about a thousand miles or 1,600 kilometers south of Khartoum. All of this would prove that Lake Victoria was the true source of the Nile. By the way, before departing, Speak would have Grant sign a document saying that he wouldn't publish anything without Speak's approval, something Burton would have been wise to have done several years earlier. Anyhow, the expedition would consist of 200 porters plus City Mubarak, a.k.a. Bombay, who had been on the expedition to Lake Tanganyika. Speak was lucky to have the dependable Bombay. However, the expedition did not hire any soldiers, which meant that they would have to essentially buy their way to Lake Victoria, since they were no threat to anyone. Also, Speak took a risk by not including a doctor, a rather stunning omission, considering how important a doctor would have been on the previous expedition. And finally, there was no linguist in the party, another mistake. The expedition would, not surprisingly, run into all the same problems that Burton dealt with several years earlier. The porters deserted, taking with them precious trade goods. The native chiefs charged exorbitant amounts to pass through their territory, and there would be fights and conflicts to deal with. Despite all of these issues, the expedition would reach Lake Victoria on July 28, 1861. Speak would travel around the western side of the lake through a region called Uganda. This area was, mostly, unknown to the world, even the Arabs. It was dominated by three large kingdoms who were considered rich and advanced. At the first of these kingdoms, Grant would develop an ulcer on his leg and be confined to a hut. This meant that Speak would have to continue north on his own. Progress was slow, as the expedition was subject to the whims of the local kings, who kept demanding more and more gifts from Speak, who had no choice but to pay up. And the kingdoms were, Speak found, unique. In many ways, they were quite advanced, with well-organized bureaucracies, advanced architecture, and exquisite arts and crafts. However, they had no alphabet, no calendar, not even a way to count. And they were often exceedingly cruel, at least in the eyes of Speak. Speak gave one of the kings a rifle as a gift. The king would use the rifle to shoot random animals, and even people, for fun. At another of the kingdoms, Speak was reportedly given several young girls by the queen. The queen was supposedly interested in seeing what color the baby of a white man and a black woman would look like. Speak would have relations with at least two girls, one 12 years old and the other 18. All of which is yuck, but also eye-rolling considering Speak was always so critical of Burton's sexual relations with the locals on their journey. Anyhow, one of the girls would bear Speak's daughter. Also, Speak reportedly fell in love with the eldest, who Speak called Mary. Speak would get upset with a girl when he became convinced that she was only having sex with him because she had been ordered to by the queen. In a petulant fit, he cut ties with her. Now, Speak's journey through Uganda is filled with controversy, and not just because he was having sex with 12-year-old girls, but because he was barely doing any exploring. He just sits at the courts of the region's kings, which weren't even on the shores of the lake, and waits for permission to continue north. This would have driven Burton nuts, who would have been chomping at the pit to simply go look around. Anyhow, this meant that Speak never really took a look at the lake and sailed around the shores, trying to determine if there were any rivers running into or out of it. Speak would eventually get permission to continue his journey, and then on July 28, 1862, he would find a small river flowing out of the lake to the north. This was, Speak concluded, the Nile River. Speak, who was reunited with Grant, 
would thus begin a trek north to follow the river, and here he would make a mistake. When mapping a river, the whole point is to travel the length of any unknown parts. This way you know if there are any other connecting rivers. While Speak and Grant would have trouble heading down the river due to hostile natives, thus Speak would, at times, cut overland and reconnect with the Nile at a point further north. It is estimated that Speak skipped around 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, of the Nile. This was a big mistake, because what if the river Speak was on was just a minor tributary of the Nile, and the river's main branch forked off in another direction? Speak could have missed any such river by taking these shortcuts. By doing all of this, Speak was opening himself up to second-guessing. Anyhow, Speak and Grant would push north and eventually reach Gondokora in modern-day South Sudan, where they were met by Europeans who descended to the town to meet the explorers. After that, it was a voyage upriver to Khartoum, where Speak would send his famous The Nile Settled Telegram in April of 1863. Speak would, again, return to England a grand hero. But if he thought everything was going to be kittens and puppies, he was very wrong. First, as Burton was in West Africa, his supporters quickly went on the offensive. Speak had not actually explored much of Lake Victoria, and he had skipped large parts of the Nile. How could he be sure this was the source if he hadn't actually checked all the possibilities? Also, Speak was under pressure from his publisher to get his book out as soon as possible. Speak was not a natural writer, unlike Burton. Thus, he struggled with his story, and the entire process would be rushed and sloppy. Speak's book, titled Journal of the Discovery of the Source of the Nile, would be published later that year. It would only cause more criticism as people found inaccuracies, contradictory information, and even outright lies. An example of this is when Speak is talking about the initial expedition with Burton. He says that he was talking with Arab traders while Burton idly stood by, yet Speak didn't know Arabic, so that couldn't have happened. Another example is when Speak's calculations show that the Nile goes uphill. And Speak didn't help himself when he was late delivering his report to the Royal Geographical Society, and he didn't do well answering questions about his data. Speak got testy with those who contradicted him, and he alienated people, such as society members, who should have been his allies. It was as if he was taking a page right out of Burton's playbook. Still another was Speak himself. A natural introvert, he was not a gifted speaker, and he struggled in the spotlight. All of this fueled Speak's doubters, with Burton behind the scenes egging people on. There are some reports that say that Speak grew despondent after his return to England. He had achieved his great goal, but now he saw little in life that appealed to him. He didn't like speaking to the public or writing books, and he didn't like the accusations being leveled at him. I think Speak was, sadly, one of those people who craved fame, yet didn't know how to enjoy what he had. He had expected fame to bring him happiness, yet now it was just a million people and interests pulling and poking at him for things he didn't care about. And then, when he went to the Royal Geographical Society, looking to conduct a third journey to Africa, they said no, at least for the time being. Speak had upset too many important members, and while they respected what he had done, it was not to the thorough standards they desired. Anyhow, that would bring us to the summer of 1864 and the return of Richard Burton from Africa, his job as the West African Council now over. Once in England, Burton, of course, only pressed the issue by piling on Speak, pointing out all his mistakes and wrong conclusions. And let's remember, Burton was a skilled orator and writer, so the doubts about Speak only grew. Even the famed explorer, Dr. David Livingston, expressed his concern, saying Speak had, quote, turned his back on the real sources of the Nile, end quote. Livingston thought that the river flowing out of Victoria was too small to be the Nile. Anyhow, all of this would come to a head when a friend of Speak's, Lawrence Oliphant, convinced him to hold a public debate about the subject, Burton versus Speak. The two men would agree. The debate was set for September 16, 1864, in Bath. Oliphant would report that Burton would get thrashed by Speak if the former even bothered to show up. 
Oh, but don't you worry. Burton was going to show up. The knives were out, and Burton was not afraid to wield them. So the actual Burton-Speak debate was part of a larger program with the highly anticipated confrontation, the finale. On September 15th, both Burton and Speak would attend the proceedings, but not take part in them. Speak was described as fidgety and nervous, and then at one point he got up and left the room, reportedly saying, quote, Oh, I can't stand this any longer, end quote. On the way out, Speak was asked if his seat should be saved for him, to which he replied, quote, I hope not. The next morning, Burton, along with Isabel, arrived at the hall and took their seats. Burton waited anxiously, his notes on small cards in his hands. The program start time would near and then pass, and the room became nervous when Speak did not appear. And then, after about 25 minutes, an announcement was made. John Hanning Speak was dead, killed in a hunting accident the previous afternoon. Everyone was stunned. What had happened? Well, the day before, Speak, who was staying at his uncle's estate, had gone hunting with his cousin and the estate's gamekeeper. At around 4 p.m., Speak would climb over a low stone wall and his shotgun would go off, shooting him just below the armpit. Speak managed to say, don't move me, and a doctor was quickly sent for. However, it was too late. He would be dead 15 minutes later. John Hanning Speak, the discoverer of the source of the Nile, was dead at the age of 37. And thus Burton, instead of delivering his attack on Speak, would be asked to give an impromptu lecture on a different subject. Burton would oblige, talking about his journey to the Kingdom of Dahomey in Africa. It was a sad and unfulfilling ending to what Burton had hoped would be a crushing of a rival. Now, regarding Speak's death, an inquest was held and it was determined that the shooting was an accident, and history has mostly concurred. However, some have speculated that Speak shot himself, unable to face Burton in the debate hall, and Speak's behavior the previous day, it was noted, revealed a troubled man. And they argued that Speak, an accomplished hunter, would never have pointed his weapon at himself in that situation. However, from the evidence and statements, it sounds like it was an accident. The guess is that Speak was tired and distracted, and he'd made a simple but deadly mistake. Now, despite the death of Speak, the debate about the Nile source was still a point of contention, especially for Richard Francis Burton. Two months later, Burton would go to the Royal Geographical Society and deliver the presentation he had intended to give at Bath in the debate with Speak. He would later turn the presentation into a small book titled The Nile Basin. Burton goes after Speak and his conclusions, really pouncing on the inconsistencies and inaccuracies. And Speak had left a hundred miles of the Nile untraced, plus he had not explored Lake Victoria. It was shoddy work, he argued. And in the end, Burton did a pretty good job of sowing doubt about Speak's accomplishments. It is petty, but this is Burton. He did not forget or forgive. However, while Burton's arguments cast doubt on Speak's work and demonstrated Speak's weaknesses as an explorer, it didn't mean that Speak was wrong. The truth would finally be established when explorer and journalist Henry Morton Stanley would conduct an extensive expedition to Africa 12 years later. Stanley would take a boat around the entire shore of Lake Victoria and journey up the Nile, proving that Victoria was the source of the world's longest river. And that, my friends, ends the debate about the source of the Nile. At the time, it was a huge deal. In the end, no one was really happy about how it all played out. Burton never forgave Speak for what he had done and would attack the guy often, even years after his death. However, Burton was known at times to be sympathetic towards Speak. In casual conversation, he would acknowledge the man's bravery, and he would say they had been like brothers. Burton's malice towards Speak was, perhaps, tempered by the fact that he felt that many of Speak's actions were the result of bad advice from friends as well as its publisher. No matter, the debate was over. Burton now had to figure out how to conduct the rest of his life. And that will lead us to our next episode, which I believe will be the last in this series. Burton will continue to work as a diplomat with a bit of exploring thrown in. 
but he will also take a deep dive into translating some now legendary works, which we will cover in the next episode. Before we finish, I want to make three notes about the subject of Burton and Speak. First, I want to acknowledge Sidi Mubarak, better known as Bombay. The man is one of those quiet heroes of exploration. These are the people who aren't heads of any expedition, but are essential to making things happen, sort of like Tom Crean in our Shackleton series. Anyhow, between 1856 and 1876, Bombay participated in expeditions by Burton, Speak, Henry Morton Stanley, and Vernon Lovett Cameron. Under Stanley, Bombay was the caravan chief when they went and found Dr. David Livingston. In 1873, with Stanley, he walked across the continent of Africa from the east to the west coast. It is a pretty amazing life for a guy born as a slave. My second comment is regarding John Hanning Speak. Historians have not been particularly kind to the man. A lot of this was because after his death, he had few supporters to fight for his cause, and the attacks by Burton and his allies only cast Speak in a lesser light. Speak's introverted, calculating personality doesn't help, or many of his actions, both in Africa and in England. As I noted last time, I have not even shared with you a couple of the really odd stories that will make you not like Speak even more. And as I said last time, I don't say this to be sensationalistic, just to put an emphasis on what an odd and weird guy Speak was. In the end, Speak will have a place as the first European to reach Lake Victoria, a not insignificant achievement. But after that, there's not much else, especially when you compare him to Burton, whose legacy is enormous. Anyhow, the final thing I want to mention here is a novel and a movie about the Burton-Speak rivalry. The book is titled Burton and Speak by William Harrison. Published in 1982, the historical novel gets decent reviews, but I will admit I have never read it. The movie, which is an adaptation of the book, was put out in 1990 and is titled Mountains of the Moon. I actually saw the movie when it first came out, as even then I was a Burton nerd. It's pretty good, nothing special, but decent. By the way, the movie stars Game of Thrones actor Ian Glenn, aka Jorah Mormont, as Speak, and Fiona Shaw, who is Petunia Dursley in the Harry Potter films, is Isabella Rundell. The rest of the cast is first-rate, including actor Patrick Bergen as Burton. So that is it for today. I think we will have one more episode on Burton, but it may stretch into two. We shall see. Otherwise, special thanks to all of our supporters, including our patrons. This includes Ralph, Gregory, Philip, Elizabeth, Eamon, David K., Greg, Eileen, Christopher, Collier, Catherine, Adam, Rudy, Dave P., Donnell, and many others. Thank you for your continued support. By the way, if you haven't noticed, in 2022, I've increased the number of episodes the podcast has produced, and that is directly linked to the support all of you provide, so thank you. That is a wrap for today. I will see you next time. Please take care. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other great podcasts, such as Food with Mark Bittman and the Unbiased Science Project. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, 
Let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.